so there are six tantric vehicles and um so of the, of the total and the total vehicle number of vehicles is nine and um so the the three highest levels of tantra in uh, so so we're talking about uh, tibetan buddhism here tibetan tantric buddhism vajrayana and so the three highest levels are uh, mahayoga anu yoga and ati yoga or dzogchen and um, it seems that that um, you can kind of take a look at these these different vehicles, especially these these three highest vehicles, and then try to understand what they are trying to accomplish. And that's that's an interesting exercise. So I don't know if if the interpretation that we will discuss whether that's something that will be uh, palatable for a, a traditional Vashrayana um, expert. But um, you know we, we're allowed to speculate and we're allowed to to try to. Uh, use uh, Tantra as a framework to kind of understand something about possible practices that you can use for transformation. Um, and so it seems that Maha Yoga is very much concerned with identity. So one of the key practices of Maha yep. Yoga is Yidam practice. And, and Andrew, I know you, you, you know more about, uh, about these things than I do. So please correct me if I, uh, if I make a mistake. So Maha Yoga is very much concerned with, um, with identity. And one of the practices is uh, Yidam practice, where you do visualizations of yourself as a Buddhist deity. So that's yeah. one of the core practices of Mahayoga. This is called uh, um, um, the generation stage. Generation phase, yeah. I, I could say a couple of yeah. things about that. Is that sure. that is, is basically what you do is your, your psychosomatic image of yourself as, you know, me, Andrew Sweeney or whatever, is what you usually impute on yourself. And, and, and so you turn that around and you impute that on the image of a deity, you know, usually saying a mantra and the deity is often feminine. So if you're a man, you're often visualizing a, a sexy red woman or something like that. Uh, you know, so you're visualizing your inner self and, and you're uh, with, with all of these various accoutrements and symbols and, and, and uh, in, a, in a dynamic play of some sort. And, and so you do that repeatedly for a long time and t- until you, you lose your own psychosomatic perception of yourself and, and that and transform that to the, to the, to the deity. So your actual perception becomes a uh, 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 deity. Um, deity is, is a kind of perce- perception, if that makes any sense to, to people. I would add yeah. that that's probably how religion worked to begin with. So, you know, a deity, the way we use it today, we're completely colored by this sort of, it's not even Christian, it's sort of a late Protestant Christian idea that God is, is like an old man sitting on a cloud being bored, listening to people on Facebook all day long and giving them likes, you know, <laughs> which of course not what a God is at all. I mean, in most cultures, gods refer to, you know, the forefather or the foremother or, or some kind of, of idea of, of what somebody could be or potentially has been, or, 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 and then you project that. And of course you can also project that onto yourself. For example, when you sit in front of a saint, and you pray to the saint. The saint is the saint for you and, and your kind, and your archetype. And therefore, you, you pray to this saint who will then pray to God. But you pray to this saint, obviously, to mimic that saint and, and, and try to transfer that personality onto yourself. Yeah. So and I should also add that it's not, a, it's not considered to be the end of, the, of, a, of a path. It's, it's a skillful means. In other words, the deity that you're... It's like when you watch a movie, you, you get involved in this movie. You don't think the movie is real, but you... But 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 you get involved so much in this that it becomes real, and then you dissolve that. Um, you know you know you, you get so involved in the icon or the deity or, or whatever that, and then that dissolves, and then you move on to the next step when you've when you've mastered that particular step. 
Yeah. That's a, it's actually interesting, Alexander, that you said about uh, you know praying uh, like praying to a saint. So in the in the lower tantras, there you you visualize the deity in front of you. So in the higher up you go, so in mm. Maha Yoga, you actually meditate that you are the deity yourself. So yeah. so you have this you have this succession. And and obviously this is something that plays around with with uh, with identity, right? So you yeah. get rid of this of this very fixed identity of self. You know, I am I am this person who works there, and that's my name. And so so of course there's nothing wrong with that, but but there's often a certain rigidness about these identities that make you inflexible to deal with a wide range of of situations. And so you could you could you could uh, interpret Maha Yoga as an attempt to create a, a potential. Of, of different forms of being that, dif- that, that fit many different um, circumstances. Yeah. And many of these deities, they have a specific flavor. So some yeah. deities are, are peaceful, some deities are wrathful. So that means that there is anger involved or there is lust involved. So, so you become familiar with, with um, in a meditation post, you be- become familiar with these, with these very passionate ways of being by by visualizing yourself as a, as a deity. So yeah, that, I, that's, the, that's the essence of Maha Yoga. And you might be given the deity which suits your particular neurosis or, or a personality type. Like if you're, if, you're a, if you're an angry type of person, you might be given a, you know, I don't know, you might be given an angry deity or a peaceful deity or the opposite sometimes, or you, you would be given something that, that would, would help you work with whatever energetic neurosis you might have so so the deity so the neurosis becomes the the you, you don't get rid of it it becomes the deity as well like it becomes an ornament they call it ornament it becomes like an ornament um that makes sense because this is exactly what monotheism gets wrong with polytheism and i've always argued that they operate in parallel they can never be seen as, as you know it's just two different religions but under the same religion in the sense that monotheism always deals with some kind of an exodus there's a point to which you're going there's a new era in front of you or a new territory in front of you that you need to sort of conquer and you need to arrive there so you set up your ambitions to get there and you take those who are with you your chosen ones with you to go there that's what we call exodology in our work so that's part of it that's what monotheism does Monotheism is always concerned with some point in the future, and that's exactly what needs only one God. Or actually, when you say, you can have no other gods beside me, it actually doesn't deny that there are the gods. It doesn't deny that there's a need for other gods. Monotheism just says that when it comes to the monotheistic endeavor, that's concerned with only one God, which is usually a phallic entity of some kind we're walking towards into the future. But this exact polytheism is absolutely necessary. You can take Catholicism, for example. But Catholicism tried to introduce the sort of Jewish monotheism, which worked maybe for Judaism because it was a small religion with only one nation and one language. But when Christianity became a universal religion, Catholic, Catholicism realized that it didn't work to have only one God. And of course the God was split up to begin with because the phallus has to be split. But then next, Catholicism was smart enough to introduce all the saints. And so did, of course, Orthodox Christianity. This is what's desperately lacking in Protestant Christianity, which is exactly why it's out of Northern and Western Europe, out of Protestant Christianity, that we get all the idol worship we have today, all these stars and celebrities and all these things that we got. And they came out of the idea that the monarch should be supreme. The monarch should be absolute supreme directly under God and be the second God. So polytheism, was replaced with monarchy. And that's, of course, a terrible way of doing polytheism because the point of what we're talking about here 
in Tibetan Vajrayana Buddhism and actually what works in Catholicism is that if you install a second layer of polytheism that people can go to directly, they go directly to Virgin Mary, they go directly to the saints. They don't have to go directly to God because that's like unfathomable for people to go directly to the Lord yeah. Father. Yeah, it's a bit like that. You start with the Virgin Mary and then and then when, when, and then that's the intercession towards meeting God. So that's why you do Maha Yoga practice in a sense. And that's why it's so um, early here. That, that's why it's, it's yeah. so early. It sounds shocking to kind of pretend you're a God or pretend you're a deity at this stage, but it actually does make sense because that is exactly what we do. We mimic properly. There's another way of doing this, but it's kind of a very modern shortcut. But it's, of course, the psychedelic experience. And if the psychedelic experience is properly done, it can be a shortcut in this because obviously we do a psychedelic experience. Again, we look at some kind of deity, we pretend we're that deity. And of course we get stuck in that, we get stuck with a psychedelic psychosis. That's why they're risky to take. But mm -hmm. of course, if you, if you can just be in a state where you stay temporarily and then you get out of it, psychedelics can do the same thing. The pointer is to do what Slava Shishik calls to get a parallax view of yourself. So you don't have just one perspective of who you are, but you actually look at yourself from different viewpoints to start with from the way other people look at you. And by having these different viewpoints of your identity, you get a sound identity. You don't get this sort of narcissistic stuck identity. But you have an identity which is much more fluid and dialectical. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that uh, that this was related to this parallax view of Zizek. That's, so that's what it refers to. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, the whole it, it, deity it, it, practice is a parallax universe. It's, a, it's an entire universe yeah. of, you know. Well, we, we all three speak at least two languages. And we also know that if you speak two or more languages, you can finally understand what language is. Yeah. You, can't, you can't even remotely understand what a language is if you only speak one. And, and you're really literally going to believe. If you speak only one language, you're li really literally going to believe that all the symbols are real in that language. Yeah. When you speak two, and the second you discover that, oh, there's no word for this in that language, but I have a word for that in the other language, you sort of want to jump over there. Then you realize, okay, a language is, you can only think as well as the language you have. And if you have two or more languages, access to two or more, you're immediately more intelligent. That's yeah. a perfect example of what the parallax view means. Yeah. And, and this obviously is training towards that. And and Maha Yoga is a whole language of of of, of symbols, which is is you know totally bizarre from the you know conventional point of view. Totally bizarre, like it makes no sense whatsoever to to a conventional po point of view. I, I don't think, um, and and you would only get there if you if you were working with a teacher who was teaching this, you this language, and how to ha inhabit this parallax. Um, so you would then uh, get, guessing here. I'm the I'm the least literate on this of the three of us, but then if you're a teacher, you would obviously have a student in front of you who really needs just to mimic something and then do it. Or you'd have somebody in front of you who'd like to challenge and who needs to challenge. And obviously you can play around with the deities accordingly, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Cool. So yeah. we, I mean, are we going to go to the yoga? normal stage of, of, of things you go through, right? Which are, but, but one person might be happier in this stage and the other person might be happier in this stage and depending on on your your capacities and you know how good you are at doing these kind of unusual practices so the, so isn't there so just to come back to this uh, zizek and uh, a parallax view is, is this also related to deleuze with the schizoid analysis no i think that's what's lacking and the interesting thing about zizek is that it did write organs without bodies 
by the way, the book where he talked about me and Sodicus quite a lot. But he did write Organs of Bodies. It was his sort of dealing with Deleuze right before he wrote the Parallax View. So that led into the Parallax View, which I now regard as one of his two or three most important books. I, I would always so, say well, so less, than, less than nothing is his masterpiece. And I would say the Parallax View is also a very, very good, interesting book. Where he so goes what's the deep. difference between the Deleuzean uh, schizoid analysis and the Parallax View of Zizek? Because in the schizoanalysis, you don't have that point. The pointer is you have a point and you look at the point from different perspective. That's why it's a parallax and not a parallel. That's exactly the point. Parallax, completely different mathematically. So, so the point is the same, but you just move over from another direction and look at it. That's why I say it's similar to the psychedelic experience. What you learn from the psychedelic experience is that you can look at the world completely differently. And it isn't necessarily wrong. It's just very different. Colors can look very different from what you assume they would look like. Angles can be very different from, from what you look like. So you realize that, oh, you realize that my vision can fool me. Uh, it, 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 I, I have a sobriety here. I have a sober perspective of reality, but it's just sober. It's not necessarily correct. And yep. to understand the difference between sobriety and correctness is exactly the kind of lesson you learn from doing a psychedelic experience. Obviously, that is exactly the point here as well. Yeah. By having different ways of looking at yourself, you dissolve your identity, but yeah. that's where Deleuze gets stuck. So Deleuze does not unite that identity again. He, he kind of, all, he, the problem with Deleuze is that he's, a, he's an anarchist romantic. Felix Guattari was so even more. And the problem with Deleuze is that you cannot finish off with Deleuze. You have to bring Hegel and Zizek and other guys into the picture to, to, to unify the whole thing again. Because at the end of the day, you've got to have a sense of self before you go on to the next step. You cannot take, you cannot go from one area here to another area here without having a sense of self in between. The self is always like this. The problem I haven't solved but that I will postpone until tomorrow. And therefore you can go to bed at night with a strong sense of self. Not because you solved the problem before you went to bed, but because you decided to keep the problem, identify with it, and then start solving it tomorrow. That is what a sense of self is in Hegel and Lacan. Mm -hmm. and, and, but yeah, and, and uh, in the Maha Yoga, you're, it's, it's, it's radical because you're shifting that sense of self. Um, you know, And often, yes, intoxicants, uh, are part of that because because you're intoxicating the ego or you're intoxicating the sense of self, so that it it, it so that it comes out of its its limited or conditioned or or mechanical perspective. That makes any sense. Yeah, I would say you're not really shifting the self. You're shifting the perspective of the self, aren't you? Isn't that the point? It's not the self that's jumping around. It is the angle at which you're looking at the self that's shifting. Because that's the way I've always perceived it. And of mm -hmm. course, I'm judging because of my background in psychoanalysis and in psychedelics, I'm judging it on that point because it makes perfect sense then. And that's exactly why a deity is you identify with the deity. Thomas said this was all about identity. You identify yeah. with the deity as if you were the deity. That is not a different self. That well, is just right. identifying the self differently from a different angle. Well, that ultimately, is parallax is a good word here. Ultimately, they say perception is the deity, which I think is kind of interesting. Like, you know, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, perspective, perception, there you go. Yeah. Okay, I think this is a good good point to introduce then the, the next level. So we have Maha Yoga, and then the, the, the next level, so that's the vehicle number eight. Uh, so the first three vehicles are sutric vehicles, and then you have six uh, stantric vehicles. So vehicle number uh, number eight is Anu Yoga. So, and that, um, so, 
so what you say, like, you know, you, you look at, at the self from different perspectives and stuff like that. So there's, a, there's, there's some kind of, so in Maha Yoga, there's still a certain amount of um, artifice about Contrivance, yeah. Yeah. You, do this, you do these visualizations and you do these meditations and you, you visualize yourself as a specific deity and, and you, you learn how to do this visualization very precisely uh, in the course of your meditation practice. But then Anu Yoga um, kind of takes away some of the artifice. So it, it brings in the body much more. And there the, 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 the mandala and the deity that you carefully constructed in Maha Yoga is much more spontaneous. You can kind of say it like it's more like you act without thinking. You know, you 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 have a certain stance in the world, uh, a certain way of being that that spontaneously arises. But in practice, Anu Yoga is also very much um, involved with so-called subtle body practices, and these are our um, meditations. Yoga For example, mm -hmm. there's, there's Tumo meditation, inner fire meditation. There's stuff like Tsalum. There's stuff like uh, True Core. So these are our um, meditations that involve very much involve visualizing the the, the body. Um, they they also often involve movements through core and salung is uh, meditation yoga and movement combined. So they work with with something that's called the subtle body, and that is basically um, um, it is um, it's experiencing the body in in a completely different way, in uh, in a much more spatial spacious way. And instead of uh, interpreting your emotions with uh, with with language you actually experience them more as as bodily manifestations so fear is is a pattern of um of of bodily um of, of bodily circumstances rather than something that you that you um you 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 um you put into language so that's anu yoga so and if you um so wim hof practice that is actually a westernized form of anu yoga so wim hof goes back to uh, inner fire meditation tumo meditation and uh, and so he basically kind of cleaned that up and, and put his own uh, his own uh, um, twist uh, on it so tumo inner fire meditation is done in in tibet in the snow so yeah. it's actually proven and so there's a nature article about it there's an article in in uh, in plus one which is a peer-reviewed scientific journal and so, so these these monks they can meditate in the snow and they can raise their body temperature. That's why they can just sit there in the snow for for a long time. I've I've yeah, met people cool. who are, are good at this, and and I, I was with this guy in Hamburg who was very good at this, and he was walking around with no shirt in. It was like minus twenty. It was he was totally relaxed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he'd been doing these so, these practices for years. <laughs> uh -oh. so, so that's Anu Yoga, yeah. and also Anu Yoga. So so there is there are many indications that this is kind of a sublimated sexual practice. Because also Anu Yoga is very much uh, um, linked to uh, Karma Mudra, which are these these uh, these uh, sexual tantric practices, which are quite old. So I think that the first really um, hard hard evidence of these practices uh, is the seventh, eighth century, something like that. There are even older uh, documents that seem to to refer to these practices. So Anu Yoga kind of makes the makes this this visualization of of the, the, the of the the self as deity and the mandala it makes it much more embodied and it makes it much more um much more spontaneous so that yeah. that would be my my take on it so and yeah again, and, so and i would say that maha yoga apparently gets rid of the this is i'm just quoting uh uh, tracked him here the, the gross obscurations uh, of, a, of a sort of the vulgar obscurations and anna yoga works on the subtle uh, um, obscurations you know of perception uh -huh. so so uh so so it just it, it moves from gross to subtle even though both are kind of you don't you don't want to be too linear in thinking about them because they're kind of both happening at the, well, what does it mean with obscuration? So just clarify that well obscurations like 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 um you, like 
you know, um, de depression or, or false images of yourself or neurosis or, or whatever it is that is, you know, it's, it, these practices are extraordinarily therapeutic if they're done properly, if they're not, they, they work better than psychoanalysis. Um, so, yeah, so I would say just your neurotic psychosomatic self gets put in a, in a washing machine <laughs> um, and, and comes out as something different uh, each time you go through one of these cycles of practice. Well, Does that make sense, Thomas? Basically, are basically treating yourself or others as objects, often yeah. yourself too. So if yeah. you think of yourself as, an, as a thing or somebody else as a thing, that, that would be an obscuration. So this is uh, exactly, related yeah. to this concept of emptiness, which is often very fluffy and stuff like that. But I basically just... Uh, interpreted as as Whiteheadian process, right? Where you see yourself as a as a process rather than as a thing that that adopts different uh, properties. So Good. that's one of the interpretations of of emptiness. So every time you treat somebody as a thing, um, well, well, I mean, let's not it can be very useful actually. <laughs> but I mean, oh, you mean there are very... sex objects out there, for example. <laughs> Well, I mean, I mean, there's nothing well, wrong with it. I mean, sometimes you, you, you do calculations or, I mean, uh, you, or you, you organize events and stuff like that. I mean, you shouldn't. There's no such thing uh, as a thing from an ultimate point, point uh, from yeah, there, the ultimate there are point no of things, view. Right? Ultimately, there's there no, are no things. such yeah. thing as things from that point. That's the, the, the point of view, right? I mean, it doesn't mean that, you know, we don't, you know, treat them as things because we have absolute and relative truth, right? And, and there's the absolute and relative way of looking at things. I mean, I'm just quoting um well of course tantra is inclusive so you you can <laughs> well this is what's fucking amazing about tantra is it does include the body right it does include the object the thing the you so so it's it's it's, it's kind of like it's very subtle because you could you could you could fool yourself in, into this is what i was trying to say in my my thing you could fool yourself in, into making that some kind of uh um because it's deeper than just just i don't know I think. But this was the problem with psychoanalysis all along, wasn't it? Because psychoanalysis was a couch and an authority of some kind who turned his back on you didn't make him less of an authority, yeah. did it? No, yeah. worked the other way around. And, and that, that was always the problem with both Freud and Lacan. And yeah. but at least we arrived at a point that we realized, okay, that's a limitation we can't really live with because you can sit theoretically and talk about how important the body is and how embodied you must be, but it doesn't make any sense if it's not part of the practice. And it never was. So th this is the radicality of Tantra as the embodied aspect of the practice, I, I think. I mean, this is what I am told. Again, I don't want to put myself forward as some kind of expert here because uh, I'm not. But I think it's, it's all about the body, right? Um, you, there's no enlightenment without the body, whereas sutric practices is about... This is, 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 is still a two worlds mythology to use John Verveke's term. There's still, you know, you're trying to get away from bodily um, experience and experience some kind of nirvana, but that's not the view of Tantra, right? Yeah, there's, there's some escapism involved there because, um, so, so first of all, there's a revulsion of the body, a revulsion of sexuality because it's involved with desire. And then there's also meditation practices uh, such as the jhanas, where you, you can basically just meditate yourself away, where you can just sit down for hours in, in, um, in meditative bliss and emptiness. And uh, the, the problem is that it's very pleasant, but it doesn't necessarily make you an, uh, an, an attractive party person or, or, or somebody that other, other people right. want to be around, right? I mean, you're just sitting on a, on a, on a pillow. It, in your own yeah. 
But it's yeah. very useful. These, these these things are very useful. They can be used to to um, uh, to to, uh, um, to to good effect, or they can be abused as as escapism, right? So that's why you have these vehicles. So every vehicle corrects the the, the dangers and the shortcomings of the of the previous vehicle. So it's not so that that these that one the first vehicle is is poor and the second one is better. And, so it's just that, well, you, you start with a certain practice and that practice solves certain problems, but it also creates other problems. And then you correct it with another vehicle and then you have other problems. And so there, there's, no, there's no end to it. And then you have the highest level, which is the, the ninth vehicle and that's Ati Yoga or Dzogchen. And that's kind of like always very difficult. <laughs> I never know how to describe it. It's basically kind of like letting go of structured practice, but at the same time you don't. So it's it's kind of like a certain uh, it's, it unifies sutra and tantra, and at the same so it unifies them and it transcends them. So uh, Jokchen is often described as the 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 part of the of the lazy yogi, because there's nothing. Or to the do. old dog. Or it's then itself is then yeah the old dog or the, the old man basking in the sun and and, yeah. and then of course it's then said well yeah but this this practice of doing nothing there's nothing to do is actually very difficult. So you kind of get, get uh, just uh, blown away by all these paradoxes. Uh, so that's, that's the, the final vehicle, the ninth vehicle. Which, yeah, and this, uh, this really plays into the idea we discussed before that you can't have process philosophy without dialectics because these are dialectical relationships you're talking about between the different levels. So before we go into the doctrine, and, and, and okay, common question here. What is the difference between moksha and nirvana? Okay. Have moksha, which is like <laughs> moksha, moksha means liberation, right? Nirvana means putting out. I think that's a, the etymology. So, so nirvana means to oh, put no, out. Oh, no, you think you, you think you can actually translate them to English? Because knowing sounds great, and knowing well, best nirvana, like like again, by the end of these words can be translated. So we shouldn't jump to any translations too quickly. But if you try to describe moksha and nirvana in a comparative way, like why do we have the two terms here? Why do we deal with both moksha and nirvana? I don't know. I, I sort of thought they were the same thing, uh, more more or less. Um, I, I couldn't I couldn't tell you. I mean, one of the things, one of the misconceptions of of, of Buddhism is is that it, it, the, the goal is nirvana, <laughs> but um, that's not the goal. <laughs> that's the goal of early Buddhism. But you know, as as Thomas said, that 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 but that that is a limited goal. And then in Mahayana, there's a larger goal. Um, which is kind of altruism and helping people and compassion and that sort of thing and wisdom and blah blah blah, and then the, and then and then the tantra is, is another goal, but it, but it's it's definitely not about attaining nirvana, um, I, I don't think. Would you agree with that, Thomas? Or well, in in, in tantra you have this saying that uh, samsara is nirvana, right? Right. So samsara is the is the the cycle of illusion. Well, it becomes a non-dualistic. It becomes a non, or a mon, you would call monist. It becomes, there's no dualism in tantra. I mean, there shouldn't be a dualism. There's a very subtle dualism that you transcend each at each stage. Yeah, but that's why that's why cut you short when you said liberation. You can't say liberation because in this case, it's obviously liberation from suffering. That's mm -hmm. not how you use the word liberation in the English language, at least when you're outside of a Buddhist context. Yeah, moksha that, that means liberation that, yeah. though doesn't it is it no is it... liberation from suffering it's not liberation if you say liberation in english you mean you're liberated uh you're free you you the state oh. will no longer control you or you have tons of money you can do what you like that's what we used to work we use it as equivalent to freedom mm -hmm. but liberation here is liberation from suffering and that's entirely different meaning that it's death 
right? But it's death. Yeah, but that would not be a tantric view, uh, liberation from suffering, right? So tantra doesn't. Yeah. Tantra is not about removing suffering, or that's the whole point. I mean, it doesn't. So, sutra is kind of sutra wants to extinguish desire. So that would be nirvana. There's no desire left. So you're desireless. The dissolution of desire. While tantra says, "Oh no, desire. That's great. Why don't we crank it up?" and then do do interesting stuff with it uh so that would be the tantric view yeah so tantra celebrates desire while while sutra uh wants to curb desire and actually extinguish it and that that's nirvana in the in the hinayana in the sutric sense yeah and okay. so tantra is like i i've heard it said it's the path of like anger and passion so so the passions are the path and the anger is is you know but they're transmuted they're not just stupid passions you know that are being expressed so would you so would you say in tantric buddhism that you do you arrive in a pure process like everything returns to the same in existence or is there some kind of an event that changes history changes history hmm. an event that changes history that, that is be... what zoroastrianism teaches and that's exactly what no, evolved no, versus I don't, think, I, I don't think i don't think we care about history too much in tantric buddhism there's no there's not much of a, a view of history, uh, like ordinary oh, history. Oh, there's certainly one. To, As, of to, course to, there is. Of course there is. You either have a worldview that everything is always the same, returns to the same point again and again and again. So your specific life might be experienced as unique to you, but you're just one of these life forms that sort of circulate and do the same thing over and over again. And then you're all extinguished, eventually going to moksha. And therefore nirvana is different than moksha, according to me, because nirvana is involved with a personal experience, whereas moksha is more like a general term. The way of, that's exactly why the Hindus talk about moksha all the time, but you find nirvana all the time in Buddhism. Nirvana is a, a personal experience? Hmm, because I, I thought it would be more like the, the, the self it dies in, in nirvana or the self is 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 extinguished in the, like in zen the paradox yes you just you said say, that you said self you say, but the point say, with moksha the point with moksha is that moksha is just that things in general are extinguished obviously moksha, two moksha is just death whereas whereas um like the zen phrase is you know when you when you you know what is it if if when you die you don't die, or when if you if you die first before you die when you die you don't die you don't die or <laughs> or you, you're supposed to die before you die and said so you're like you're supposed to die to your your uh, limited um individualistic psychosomatic yeah, but the reason, oh. the reason why I'm asking about moksha and nirvana is such common terms that they need to be defined and, and we can ask anybody who watches this conversation to check out for themselves um and learn Sanskrit if you can. But I wanted to define it because before we go from Ani Yoga onto Dogshan itself, I think that's an important distinction to make. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because the old dog or the old man, you talk about Dogshan, obviously the guy who does nothing, which is really, really hard. That's why it's the ninth and last level, has a similarity in Zoroastrianism. It's called Haurvatat. And Haurvatat roughly translated means wholeness or fullness. fullness yeah. There's, there's nothing else to learn. It's like, you were lucky enough to live a long life if you were lucky enough to live a long life. But you did. You lived a long life. There's nothing really more to learn. It's a sort of saturation level where, yeah, I could go to Madagascar, but I don't care if I did go to Madagascar in my life because I would figure out what Madagascar would be like anyway. It's like you, you reach a certain point in your life and you've gone through all these different states and you've lived a full life. So what the Zoroastrians try to do, that's why it's so interesting how it merges with Varyana. What the Zoroastrians try to do is to not isolate themselves to go into these practices, which you can do, obviously you can do. And then you're more likely to succeed because they're actually taking a more shamanic route 
through the practices in Tantra Buddhism. But what the Zoroastrians say that you, you should not go outside the community, you should try to, within the community, through practices, achieve the same thing. So, for example, the more playful answer a Zoroastrian has to a Buddhist, when a Buddhist says in a more general sense that I aspire towards enlightenment, obviously Tantra doesn't, but Buddhism does in general. So I aspire towards enlightenment, then a Zoroastrian will say, oh, don't worry about that. It's called death and you will certainly get there anyway. And if you have any sort of experience about it, if, it's not, if, if you just don't die in a plane crash, well, maybe even then, because it might take seconds, I don't know. But, but before you die, you would have that experience. Like I've followed people into death who lived long lives, who did everything, who lived intense, full, rich lives, who accomplished everything their libido set out to do. And when they die with a, more or less a smile on their face, they say, listen, there's only pain and repetition left. I've done it. I've done everything I said to do. And I, you know, yeah. I adopted people, I had children, I had passed on things. I was lucky enough to live a full rich life. In precise description of a full rich life. That but is that like in Vajrayana, they would say that. they would say, maybe you don't believe in this. I don't know, but in Vajrayana, they would say that you achieve the deathless state where there is no death anymore. You just you just fully No, I wouldn't say that. No, I would that's, that's what, what they so would rational. say in, in Vajrayana. I don't think they would, I don't know if they would say that in, in uh, I, I'm very skeptical of anybody talks about deathlessness or timelessness or whatever yeah. they talk about because I think you're just avoiding the topic which is death. And death is the most difficult topic we could ever consider. So you know it's maybe pain, suffering comes on a par with it. You know, anything that you would like to commit suicide is worse than death. But, you know, death is the ultimate horizon. And, and I, I, think, I think all religions deal with that. And they deal with it much better than anybody else does to begin with. It's the first thing you need to do in a religion. But I'd love to go into that, Yoga. If you want to finish that off, we can go into the dogson part. So that would be really interesting. Well, I like I like um, yeah, what uh, Thomas was saying about, about Yoga, um, you know, holding the difficult emotions and, and all that. And, you know, um, he said, you know... Uh, to keep from expressing unbridled juicements or, you know, so. Yeah, well, then, then we're back to, you uh, remember this quote from Nietzsche that once you had wild dogs in your cellar, you know, your, your emotions, your violent emotions and your pride and all these things that you were ashamed of. And then they turned into beautiful songbirds. So yeah. that's, that's the tantric idea, basically. Right? Nietzsche is so tantric. It's amazing. That's great. Um, yeah. It's really interesting to read Tantra when you are a bit familiar with uh, read Nietzsche when you are a bit familiar with Tantra because there's so many common ideas there. Also, the nobility, this, this like the, Nietzsche is often appealing to, to you know, the nobility and mastery and things like that. These are very much central to, to Tantra as well. So well, the deity is like the overman in a way, I, I suppose. Spacious yeah. passion, yeah. And, and also the, the, um, freedom of the mob, freedom of group thinking, all of these things are very, very close to, uh, to Tantra and they're all find, found in Nietzsche. So, but um, the, Alexander, you asked about, about uh, history. Um, so I think that, that something like Tantra is very, very different from Christianity where you really have like an, an event and a certain, you know, have like a historical, a very, a very um, uh, historical awareness of, of this. I think that that's not so, Tantra is much more experiment, uh, much more experiential, I would say. Um, but it does have a certain, it has something called termas. So and these are kind of like, so, so certain uh, gifted gurus, they can discover new teachings that are supposed to come from, from the Buddha. Right, but they're discovered in a in a in a, on a rock or something like that, and and so that's one one mechanism to add new solutions to contemporary problems. So that's, I think you but, can. Kind of, but does that involve that the world is new first, or or is that just that does that come out of nowhere? 
Well, ter- termas, um, for example, Chogim Trimpa was a, a master of termas, and so is this guy Chakchung that I study with, and they're contemporary teachings of ancient Tantra. So they appear to teachers, you know, in their minds, I guess. And I guess if you're if you're if you believe in weirder, kookier stuff, that you know, they they are spoken to you through through various you know forms, and uh, um, I tend to be kind of flaky in this way, believe it or not. Yeah, my point was this. But, 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 novelty, but they're, they're, novelty, they're, wait, wait a second, wait a second. Can I just novelty finish? Asked, okay, that was my point. My, that wasn't my, ask, my question. Mm-hmm. My question was, where does the novelty occur first? Because either the novelty is external to you, something happens that never happened before, and that forces you to rethink the world and come up with new solutions. Or is this an idea that there can be teachers that are so magnificent that they actually outsmart all previous teachers and come up with new ideas or new teachings you've never, ever heard before? Is that an internal or external effect, the, the novelty here? I think it's very important. Well, if you just make it very practical, if you look at what Trungpa did, right? So he took all the, the, the traditional teachings and he reformulated them so that they were uh, suitable for, for America in the 70s. So and that, that requires termos, like, like new revelations, like new techniques that, that are fitting for the, for the, the, the occasion. I think that's one way of looking at it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like as if some a, a part of the Bible would appear, you know, to somebody in in uh, uh, you know Yugoslavia. You know, it would be it would be like the, the Psalms that, but it would appear in, in the 21st century. <laughs> it's kind of a bit like yeah. that. So in Christianity, you would have another sect, right? And you would have like, okay, there's a new book that that there's appeared, new, you know. Uh, new- so that means that you have to kind of um, you you have to kind of break away from from traditional Christianity and form your own Christian sect, right? Like the Mormons and stuff like that. Not yeah. so. In, I would say that's in not Ariana, even, that's, it, that's it not, just it yeah. would basically just incorporate these new these new uh, elements in in the in the bulk of the teachings. Okay, but that's not an event because an event is something historically new that never happened before anywhere. This is just a different environment. It's just adaptation. So that's yeah, okay. I don't think, yeah. I don't think yeah. it's an event. No, no. I, I no, I would be surprised there would be event in here because if there would be, there'd be much more Persian influence of Ariana than we'd ever expected. This is the difference. But if there is a difference in Vajrayana Buddhism and Zoroastrianism, because Zoroastrianism is built on the idea of the event. It is the first religion built on the idea of the event. That something radically new can happen in history, change history forever, that's never happened before anywhere. And therefore, that's why Zoroastrianism does not have its process. It's, it's, it's not, history is never fixed. The, the surprising thing can happen. The unbelievable thing can happen. And it can change the course of history forever from that point on. That is what the event means. But to adapt something and take it to an environment, yes, that requires te- teaching mastery. That te- requires talent. It requires you to understand a new language and your new territory. You, you literally do an exodus territorially to somewhere else to then introduce that religion to, the, to other people. That's having a vision, for example. But it's not the same thing as creating an event. I would say that's mm. that's a difference. That's that would be Jewish as well, because the Jewish Jews are always waiting around for the Messiah to come, and they're quite optimistic because they they sort of believe that um, the world is comp- getting closer and closer to the when the when the when the Messiah comes or, or oh the Messiah has already come. It was called Moses. So they did the Exodus. Then they did the Exodus again for Babylon. Did the Exodus a third time in the 1940s when they went to Israel. Any Orthodox Jew would say we have three Exoduses ready. So the Messiah could come again. Yeah. So the Messiah can always return in Judaism. It's not something you, that never happened that you're waiting for. But each time the Messiah comes to the Jews, it is an event. Yeah, It's not just a repetition of the same. And that's an idea that got from the Persians, clearly. 
And so did Christianity. That's I mean, a Western religious thing, right? Yeah, the it? ultimate event is Christ on the cross. Yeah. Christianity yeah. is completely built on one event. It's absolutely central to it. Hmm. Yeah, it feels, so if you're familiar with both Christianity and, and, and uh, uh, Vajrayana or Tantric Buddhism or something like that, then, then it, the, the differences are quite striking, just the experience of it. It's a completely different way of, of thinking and a different way of um, um, experiencing the, the religion. The practices are very different. At least that's, that's how I experience it. Mm. So will this take us to the dog chain? Anything more to add, except that it's incredibly hard. You need to be an old man or an old dog to get there. <laughs> and it looks easy once you're there. But The other metaphor, it's like a blue pancake that falls in, you know, the, the sky falls in your head or something like that. So Dzogchen uses a lot of light. Um, mm -hmm. So you always meditate. So for example, you, you, you meditate with the eyes open. So there's actually something that, that many people don't know. So um, um, if you do visualizations, then you can close your eyes. So if you visualize yourself as a deity, then you can close your eyes. But otherwise, you can meditate with your eyes open. So in Dzogchen, you meditate with your eyes open. So and often, so they often use images such as, for example, well, your experiences, they are clouds in the sky. Um, the sun is never affected by the clouds. So these are these are uh, Dzogchen images. Um, the practices that um, that are done in Dzogchen they include, for example, sky gazing. So you go to a high uh, spot in the mountains, and then you just stare into the blue sky for an hour, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, so these are these are very deconstructive um, meditation yeah. techniques. Yeah. So they are. Um, so there are different types of meditations. You have meditations that are um, that are designed to generate compassion. You have meditations that are um, that generate con concentration meditations, visualization, and Dzogchen meditations are often uh, called deconstructive meditations. So yeah, there, it's, there's in a way, it's the ultimate deconstruction because instructions would be sit in a sit in a sit in a in a meditation posture and keep your eyes open. See you tomorrow. <laughs> Yeah. And you do that for you know nine days. You just sit there, and and so you you don't have anything to hang on to. There's no there's no practices anymore. So there's no no escape because all of these practices in the lower vehicles they are always they become crutches, right? So they become like these things that I do, and and Dzogchen kind of takes that away. So it's just like you know yeah. just sit down. So the whole arc of the practice is you create this kind of feast in this whole display of very baroque thing and then in the end they, you dissolve the whole thing you sweep it all away yeah, like that's that's kind of i think that's kind of well, how, how it works has a, has a very nice uh uh he's a very nice text about it so Tenzing Wangyal is a Dzogchen teacher mm -hmm. he made a lot of of uh of secret teachings available like Tsalung you can just you know buy a book now or see the videos on youtube Tsalung is really really nice practice so he's from the burn tradition so that's a kind of a shamanic um variant of, of Vajrayana Buddhism and um, so he says like so what what practice should you should you then adopt should you kind of always be this Jokchen master or what should you do and it's just well you do what what is what fits this the situation you can yeah. you can do shamanic practices so he's burned so he does shamanic practices uh, you can do sutric practices that is renunciation purification you can do tantric practices which are transforming practices or you can do these self-liberation practices which are which are Jokchen practices and yeah. and so it would be arrogant to call yourself a Jokchen master and then say like walk around and go like oh I'm, I'm in this Jokchen space you you do what you can and you do what what, what is uh, 
what is uh, relevant in this situation. And this is again related to Maha Yoga, right? You you manifest mm -hmm. the 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 being, you manifest the the, um, the 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 identity that fits the occasion. Yeah, and also you can go through it backwards. Like you could you could start with Dzogchen, and then you're not good at that. You can't you can't understand that. So then you fall back and you start to do. Um, you know, Anna yoga, and you're not good at that. So you go to Maha yoga, and then you could go backwards to the thing and then find out that the best thing for you to do would be sutra practice, like go and help somebody to soup kitchen. And, you know, uh, uh, it, it just depends, you know, what you're what you're capable of and, and, and what suits your your what your archetype is. It's, it's very rich. It's amazing how rich these things are because there's but, so many I mean, different Jokshan, potentials. Jokshan includes that you, everything, right? Yeah. You can do strict sutric practices and then internally be a Dzogchen master. So that would be, it would make perfect sense. Uh -huh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So how does this relate to Nietzsche and Girard? <laughs> well, desire, right? I mean, it's it's the same that, and Christianity. So we have Christianity, Girard, we have Buddhism and Nietzsche. So this this is like a really nice uh, set of uh, of concepts and, and traditions to understand the, the human anthropology, right? So both Buddhism, Christianity, uh, Girard, and Nietzsche—they're all all concerned with desire and Lacan, of course, right? So so that's basically so we constantly want stuff. We we are constantly have this this gap that we want to fill with things, and that can become very dangerous, both for the for the tribe, for society, and for the individual, and so both both Christianity and, and Buddhism, they try to come up with solutions for this this uh, this dangerous thing that is uh, that is called desire. Then Girard, of course, is very sutric, right? Girard would say like, "Well, what's the solution to to the current world problems? Everybody should become a Christian, right?" So, and that's essentially a sutric solution, right? Everybody should renunciate. Um, uh, destructive behavior, do not covet your neighbor's wife and so on, or your neighbor's ass. Um, I guess that comes in, in both senses of the world. Word. Um, so, so that would be Girard Sutric uh, solution. Um, while, 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 while Nietzsche is, is more, has kind of stumbled upon a more tantric solution. Yeah, I was just going to say that. That's why it's interesting to compare the two. So yeah, we've gone through it today. We've gone through the three different stages here of the tantric. So where does the sutra come into this? And in what ways Girard sutric? In what ways is Nietzsche's tantric specifically? If well, you, if well, you can elaborate would, on that. Girard would, would basically say, well, um, uh, so he would follow the Ten Commandments, right? So and especially the Tenth Commandment, do not cover, so do not, do not want what other people want. So do not go into this competition because then you competition creates rivalry, rivalry creates crisis, crisis creates scapegoating, and that that can get out of hand. So and and he's completely right. But the it's, problem it's is a that, darker version of of, of of human nature. It's like completely dark. The sutric view. It's 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 yes. it's life denying. And f finally, from the tantric point of view, and why the tantric, why Nietzsche would criticize that is it's life denying and Nietzsche hated above all things, the life deniers, didn't he? I mean, uh, um, and uh, so, so I would say that tantric, the tantric mentality is to, to dislike the life deniers. I'd say it's more like, okay, you know, we just, we, it's a radical change from that because it incorporates the body and the desires. And, you know, it, it's very life affirmative, I think, which is not what most religions are. No, I was, I would say that, that's why Nietzsche went so tantric because he thought it through fully without knowing it because obviously that was lacking in the West. And that's the whole yeah. point in our current conversation yeah. is yeah. that 
we, we are strong defenders of some kind of tantric project that, that's needed in the West. The problem today, though, is that we've lost both the sutra and the tantra in Western culture. And we went to this, this phase of secularization and we were proud of it and suddenly we threw out religion. And what we did was that we did something. It's not even pagan when we got back. I mean, paganism had some kind of idea what it was up to. This is so confused now in Europe and North America that I would say this is Sibelian rather than Dionysian to use Nietzsche's vocabulary. And I don't think Nietzsche even could have predicted this. Even when he talks about the last man, you know, he, he's talking about something that has lost the Dionysian completely, but that's not the case today. It's not the Dionysian we're seeing in the streets at all. We're seeing the Sibelian. The Dionysian, can, the Dionysian is a risk-taking project. It's like, it's like the Sibelian like, is what, Alexander? It's the okay. The Dionysian, the Dionysian to begin with. The Dionysian to begin with is the revolution. So it mm -hmm. can be justified. It can be a good idea for the son to kill the father. It's usually a terrible idea. And sometimes the father has to kill the son because the son was wrong to try to kill him. You know, that's Dionysian. Dionysian is neutral in the sense that it's often required in history. It's often a risk the collective needs to take. It needs to go into this revolutionary mode. It's a Dionysian. But mm -hmm. the Sibelian is when a force comes out of the picture, it comes from Sibella, the goddess. She, even the Greeks considered her to be a non-Greek goddess. We should emphasize that. Like she, she was important from another culture. She, she came from the East somewhere, but she wasn't Greek. The point is that Sibel was, was a goddess who fell in love with her own son. And therefore her son had to be castrated. So she couldn't have sex with her own son. So she's this goddess of goddess resentment. Of basically. Yeah, the goddess of resentment, who is mm -hmm. followed by the eunuchs. It's the eunuchs. It's the castrated people who follow her. So this is like the ultimate form of slave morality. This is slave morality celebrating itself, set out to kill any kind of master morality that exists anywhere. So this is like the ultimate Nietzsche nightmare. It's like, it's like you didn't even see that happening. But that's actually the problem today, that we see the Sibelian returning history for the first time in, in a long time. Well, it was the Chinese Cultural Revolution, certainly. And we saw it with the Jacobins during the French Revolution. We've seen this in the past with all these peace sticks running around and you know, with the vegan food and everything, and they're going to save the world, and Greta Thunberg's at the front or whatever. Then they probably sweep Greta away too, and something much nastier is going to come after it. It's completely dystopian. But... I would say in Lacanese, you would say that it's enjoying the dystopia. This is the enjoyment of the dystopia. This is like, I'm enjoying my castration. I'm enjoying that I'm shortcut. I'm enjoying my slavery and I will have my slavery no matter what. And I will actually demand that the slave is considered as the master completely. Mm -hmm. So it's not about overthrowing something to install the new mastery, which is what the Dionysians had to do. The Sibelian force, which rarely comes into history, but you got that alone in the Dionysian that Nietzsche talks about. But what was lacking, we discussed, but what is lacking in Nietzsche, it's a split of the Dionysian. And the split Dionysian is the, is the, is the proper Dynation and the Sibelian. And the Sibelian is when you got a lynch mob running down the street. That is not even pagan. It, it, it's not but even- pagan, it, would be, pagan would be organized, right? So- we'll, we'll, It would be organized we'll, and it would find the scapegoat and it would turn the scapegoat into some kind of a god. That's what Girard is discussing. But the lynch mob that is Sibelian, will go after you and kill you and they will literally just jump on you and they will forget about you and find the next one right away. So, so is it, so devastating. you said it like fascist, uh, fascist Germany, right? The Nazis, that was paganism, organized Dionysian, and then a complete, let's say like the Rwanda killings, that's more Sibelian or how, how would I see that? Yeah, I, because I would let's say- Let's not forget say, that pagan, paganism was a, was a, can be a structuring 
um, mechanism, right? So the, the Roman Empire was a pagan empire. So you can you can structure an entire empire upon pagan scapegoating mechanisms. That's possible. Basically, people have been doing that for thousands of years. Yeah. There's a way now in which trying, I dislike no. the use of the word pagan because it seems to re like yes. disrespect the, the cultures of. Because, I mean, I'm kind of a bit tired of these, you know, these Christians who put on yeah, these exactly. Christians, and then they love nature and stuff like that. And then they call it paganism. I mean, loving nature, that 19th century romanticism, the Roman Empire, which was, which was, it was the, the pagan empire per definition, was not built on nature worship, right? It was built on brutal scapegoating of slaves and based on crucifixion and torture. People don't want to hear that. But it was like that. The Greek, ancient Greek civilization, everybody so, so admires, they kept slaves that they could torture and kill regularly in festivals. These are pagan societies. They are radically alien to us, and we have forgotten that. So, so this romantic dream on paganism, right? I mean, I'm totally not on board with that. And it's back, but it's back, and it's even worse, precisely because mm -hmm. it's naive paganism. And naive paganism is when you go civilian. I would say, with Hitler yeah. and the Nazis, you probably both elements. He started out as a Dionysian, certainly, but 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 agnostic one. I think the Gnosticism was problematic with Hitler. So he would take tons of drugs and then attack Russia. That failed. Stalin fooled him. And when he realized that Stalin had fooled him, he walked into Stalin's trap. He started building concentration camps. Like if that would solve anything, like I'm gonna drag everybody with me while I go down. That's the civilian take on Hitler. That's like yeah. you know, when Hitler finally shoots himself and says that the Russians actually won. They are superior to the Germans, and I will be consequent with my ethics. I will kill myself. No, that's civilian. So he would have loved to take the Russians with him too if he could. That that was there was a point of no return from 1941 onwards, when Hitler would just go down and drag anything he could find with him, and that's exactly what the civilian force is. The civilian force is pure resentment, as Nietzsche would say. So. That's yeah, why the pagan doesn't really have resentment. That, that's lacking, and Nietzsche doesn't have a full picture of this. But it's, it's two forces we we know: Apollonian, Dionysian, that we deal with constantly, and, and it's order and chaos in many ways. But then there's a third one that pops up in history, and it pops up when we have a confused population without a tribal structure. So, for example, the way Zoroastrians would attack paganism or naive paganism is that they would say that what Zoroastrianism presents. And that's it, it's a Zoroastrian alternative to stop the scapegoat mechanism, is to say that we're an imperial religion, imperial order. That means that if we conquer another territory, we will not boil their children in oil like the Syrians did. We will actually try to domesticate them and then turn them into ours. So we will actually turn them over to our side so they can serve, but it will be our empire. And that's, of course, what Islam later inherits cleverly, when Islam says that we've got to conquer all the world, but every people we conquer, we're going to force them to convert to Islam, and if they do, they're with us. But if they won't, then we kill them. Okay, I don't, it's a kind of a weird way to convert somebody, isn't it? but it's at least better than the Syrians just would boil your children in oil and kill you, obviously. So, so it's, a kind of, it's kind of a new level of civilization that is required to withhold an empire, make an empire work over time. The Romans tried to combine these two things. So what the Roman Empire did was that it kept paganism in all its brutality, obviously, but it also tried to keep a more civilized imperial order at the same time. And that obviously finally fell apart. And when it fell apart in the fifth century, 
what saved you was your two alternatives. You either went for the military religion was Mithraism, or you went for the mother and child religion was Christianity. And by making itself a military religion, which Christianity cleverly did, they took over the Roman Empire. And then because of internal conflicts within Christianity, this was theologically impossible to be both emperor and also worship God within Christianity. It had to separate itself. And what uniquely and smartly did, and therefore kept its position in Europe, was that it said, we'll have a pope. The Pope will be responsible to God. We will not have territorial claims. So we separate church and state. And that's exactly what created Christian Europe over the next 1600 years. That's the sort of Europe we live with ever since. But uh, I, I, say, I would say that what the Sorastas did was that they did maintain their empire. But, but once the empire fell, the Pallava sect among the Zoroastrians decided to leave Zoroastrianism and basically set up Islam. And that's why I'm saying Islam is child of Zoroastrianism, I would argue it's a more vulgar version of it <laughs> because it's gnostic, fundamentally gnostic as a religion. That's why I prefer to be a Zoroastrian. But to understand how Zoroastrianism passes on to Islam is also very helpful to try to understand how Judaism passes on to Christianity. We're all dealing with the scapegoat mechanism, but I think the point here is that probably Girard is missing out, is that it's missing out on the importance of scale. So it's not in each either. The, 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 as long as the scale is tribal, most things work. As long as the tribe that's set off and has a membrane towards the outside world, so it's protected from the outside world, then the tribal order works because we lived with it for millions of years and certainly lived with it for hundreds of thousands of years. So well, our, we are evolutionary adapt to it. But when we try to create larger populations that are being controlled under one roof, like a, you know, a written language can be written and therefore used by a lot more people than a spoken language, which is usually only dialect anyway. And once you expand the territory linguistically, and you expand the territory culturally, and you settle down, and finally, you don't just have a village along a river, you have the entire river valley suddenly under your order. You need to invent new forms of government and new forms of control that are much larger than tribal, but all of those, all of those larger scales fight and struggle with the human mentality. And that's exactly why you have to invent to develop after a while new narratives and new orders and new practices that try to control and contain the powers at larger scales. And that's mm -hmm. why I'm interested in Varyana. I'm interested in Christianity. I'm interested in Islam, Zoroastrianism. All these religious systems are the only really decent systems we have historically that have tried to develop to larger scales. Compared to the political ideologies we've developed over the last 100 years, they're nothing. That's why secular society will fall apart and cannot withstand its current crisis. We have to go back to religion because it's only through these sort of interwoven great religious systems in dialogue with each other, you can develop systems that make sense today when the scale is global, to be honest about it. Yeah. That's the problem. That, that, this is what Derrida and Levinas deal a lot with. They deal a lot with how, how do you deal with a stranger? It's the Girardin question. How do you not just envy your, the, your neighbor for his wife, but how do you deal with a stranger who just walked through the door? How do you not kill him? Yeah. How, how do well, you that's why I was interested actually in this Bengalese tantric period where, where the Hindus and, and the Zoroastrians and the Buddhists, and the, the, as, you say, as you were saying, Alexander, the, there, were, there weren't these strict labels and definitions. There was a bunch of schools yeah, and, they, and they were very much learning from each other and, 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 and evolving uh, in, in, despite their differences. So, so well, you can, you, you so will for example, like, yeah. like, yeah. like, like Vajrayana Tantra is, is, is kind of dry, uh, but, but when you mix it with a bit of Hinduism and a bit of Hindu Tantra, when you mix the two together, there's, there's, 
if it's like a, the mixture of feminine and masculine there's there's a there's a more there's more poetry that comes from that there's more culture and more art rather than and less monasticism and and uh anyway yeah but that's what you get along the trade routes why do you think i'm so obsessed with yeah, the silk road the trade routes yeah. okay and why do you think camille pagan is working on nomadic life in north america before the white people arrived i mean we're all now looking at models like what would it be like to be semi-nomadic? What would it like to be nomadic? How do you think? How do you perceive the world then? And then see if we can learn anything we can take with us because the current problem we need to solve is always a problem of scaling up and scaling up the different ideas. And that's exactly what civilization has tried to deal with all along. All of these religions do that. But besides what you just said, that's exactly what the Zoroastrianism is skeptical of the guy who goes out in the forest and isolates himself to sit there for 14 years or whatever, if he wants to do it. But the Zoroastrian take is that, yes, you can go out in the forest, you can sit there and isolate yourself for 40 years and be a hermit, but you better return to the community because the whole point is not that you are going to find yourself sitting there or you're gonna be a god on your own. Because the point with that is that you're going to return one day and say, listen, I isolated myself from 14 years. And because of that, I reach a certain wisdom, which I can contribute to the community. Of course. Returning that's, to the community is the sacred thing. In that's the Zen ox herding Back pictures. into the community. Um, yeah. And the Zen ox herding pictures, the, the last picture is, is he comes back to the community with, you know, he goes off into emptiness and then he comes back to the community Um you know, it's I like a trader. Are, I mean, yeah. yeah, if a guy says, I'm going to go out there in the world and make tons of money, I'm never going to return. Well, why would you care? You know, if you fostered the guy and he leaves, you'd probably kill him because he's of no use to you. You spent 18 years fostering this kid and he wants to go out somewhere in the world and it's never going to return with anything, is he? But if he says that, I'm going to go out there in the world and see if I can conquer the world. It might take a few years before I get back. When I get back, I'm going to have stuff with me and I'm going to impress you guys and I'm going to have an abundance to present to you. Like the hunter who then becomes the trader. And that is, of course, what we're looking at here. But the spiritual version of the same thing. What do you bring back to the community at the end of the day? And to the Zoroastrian, you cannot reach Harvatat, which obviously is the equivalent to your doctrine. You cannot reach Harvatat unless that is your contribution back to the community. Otherwise, you're just narcissistic. What was the point? Yeah. yeah that's so that's the Bodhisattva as well, in, in a sense. The Bodhisattva... <laughs> actually re rejects nirvana right he absolutely rejects nirvana refuses to go into a state of nirvana uh until he's contributed uh until he's liberated beings that, that you know that's the that's the mahayana so that's already yeah. corrected at the third vehicle yeah right so the third vehicle is a mahayana vehicle and that that basically um so that that's not that's not so Mahayana says well it's not all it's not about reaching some individual state of enlightenment but it's actually about the community so why don't you stop this you know don't become a Buddha and disappear but actually stay here on purpose and serve the community so that's that that comes at a very at a very um, initial level basically so that's yeah, the what third yeah, what you then do is Zoroastrianism is that Haurvatat is followed by Shinavat. Shinavat is like, it's perceived as a bridge, it's visualized like a bridge, meaning you die, you go somewhere else, but you're literally dying, right? You, you, you're going back to the womb, whatever you want to call it symbolically, because there's no, there's no, despite the fact the word paradise is Persian, there's no talk of a paradise anywhere in Zoroastrianism. You literally die, you're done, you are done. But Ameritat is what follows, and that is wrongly translated as immortality in most translations in the West, which is dead wrong when you look at the word. Ameritat literally means what survives you, what transcends you. 
It's not you transcending. It's, it's that which transcends you, which is, of course, your heritage, your children, the next generation, what you passed on. And that you're allowed to dream about as much as you like during your life. And actually, you should, because the ultimate goal of what you do in your life is to create some kind of value and abundance that's passed on to the next generation. That is why it's the ultimate eventological religion in the, in the sense that it says that what if you actually pass something on that'd be so tremendous that it would be considered an event after you died. So after you died, this would have been used to change the world radically for the better. Well, you have to live with the fact that you probably never will experience that. It's not yours. It's not yours at all. But to think that you participate in a project that makes your proper ametta possible. You're perfectly allowed to contemplate during your life. Mm -hmm. So death is incredibly important here. The Shinavat, that's what they deal with. And that, that's why I think it ties in with me with Hegel. Hegel also says that, yeah, death is the thing. And so does Nietzsche. I mean, these guys are very serious about that. They said that everything valuable in our life is, is valuable to us because we know that we're mortal. We cannot comprehend that we're going to die. Like Heidegger says it. It's like the whole world dies with us when we die. Maybe that's a bit Heideggerian, but you know, it's like death is an incredibly intense thing, at least prior to it happening, but it creates all the values prior to it. And that's why I think the Zoroastrians were right to emphasize to have lived a full whole life is a goal in itself, but to then actually create a value that other people can use after you've after you died or to pass on a heritage that gives your children a great chance in life or whatever. That, that, is, the, that is a great thing to do. That's what Zoroastrian is so successful socially. It's even more successful than Judaism and being a religion that actually creates a very successful community. That's what I was interested in to begin with. The Parsis of India are by far the wealthiest people you ever find on the planet. And they've been like that for 2000 years. So there you go. Yeah, okay. Where are we at? <laughs> what about we solve all the world's problems? So we can, uh, this is uh, the final um, podcast. And no. <laughs> <laughs> what about distinguishing between fake suture and fake tantra? You know, I'm just looking at, at uh, Thomas's notes. Hmm. Yeah, I'm most interested, Thomas. You say all the time that Nietzsche is a Christian, but here you say Nietzsche is tantric. I agree on the latter, I don't agree on the first. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I kind of like. Um, I think he's actually. I, I think actually, I'm more Christian than Nietzsche is because he's so anti-Christian that it's unbelievable. Yeah, but it depends a bit what you. So, I, I mean, I'm I'm talking in, in about tantra in generalized terms, right? So, if you talk to a, if you would talk to a traditional Buddhist, he would give you a very different story. So, I'm kind of like looking at, at tantra and I'm trying to figure out now what, what's what are the core ideas here, right? And I've done the same thing with Christianity. And with respect to the, the, the exposure of the scapegoat mechanism, right? With, with the danger of the mob, the people become mobs and they kill scapegoats. This is a, a central concern of Christianity, although many Christians have no clue about this. But this is the core of their religion. And Nietzsche was, in, was very concerned with exactly the same problem, the problem of mobs. His overman is the, is the individual that, is not, that doesn't follow the mob. Nietzsche would have hated Nazi Germany because it's, 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 the, it's the prime example of a mob. He would have hated it. So that's a very Christian stance. So I'm not saying that, that Nietzsche is, is Christian in the sense that he believes in a life after death and stuff like that. I find these ideas, they are going around in Christianity. I don't find them particularly valuable. So that is something that Christianity has developed in you know, the life after death and, and stuff like that. And, and this obsession with sexuality, these are aspects of Christianity that I find the kind of like random elements that have been uh, added to a central good idea. 
So Whitehead said it like this, right? Buddhism is a metaphysics looking for a story. And Christianity is a story looking for a metaphysics. That's good. So the story, I, like I, I, I would even say, you know what I think? I had, I had a brief discussion with Jonathan Potro today. And, and I, I think Girard will take over Christianity. I think theology yes. will go through a Girardian revolution. I think, I think it's not only Christianity's only chance to be credible again, but I think it actually spreads like wildfire at the moment. My quote is that we were looking at it before. Will be, will be the Zoroastrian equivalent of trying to tame the scapegoat. And because we were looking in the wrong place because Zoroastrianism does precisely this by being imperial and military. It's on a different level, but that's exactly when you conquer your enemy's territory, you must not boil his children in oil. You yeah, must win not... him over. And <laughs> a lot, the difference between Islam and Zoroastrianism is in Zoroastrianism, you don't even have to convert him. You allow him to keep his religion. He can keep his religion as long as he goes into the imperial order. Wasn't that like the British Empire? I, I don't like, I don't see what's. No it's, you, no, it's completely innovated by the Persians. If you see it anywhere else in the British Empire, well, you didn't. It was ruthless. But, but you know, if you see it, say, for example, in the U.S. Constitution, it started with the Persians. It started with splitting power. And through mm. splitting power, you started to control the scapegoat mechanism. Because to the Zoroastrians, the problem with the scapegoat mechanism was the violence of war. It wasn't the violence of the mob. I'm sure they had mobs too, but they figured out that if we solve the scapegoat mechanism problem on the world level, and here the scapegoat is the baby, the child of your enemy that you would love to boil in oil in front of your enemy before you kill him, which means you kill his heritage and then you kill him. So there can be no Ameritat, there can be no Harvatat. And what the Sarastas decided to do, and this is Cyrus the Great, I think my event from antiquity is when Cyrus the Great conquers Babylon and decides to go through Babylon and kiss the feet of the Babylonian god Marduk. And it shocked the world. This is probably the most stunning thing anybody ever did. The stunning thing ever did, this is on the sixth century before Christ. The Persians conquered Babylon. And thereby the Babylonians decided we should be part of the Persian empire. The war was over. They could worship Marduk as much as they like. And, and what Islam then vulgarly do, does is that it forces you to convert their religion to mimic what the Persians did because it was a successful formula. But the problem with the, with the Arabs when they did that was that they said, you must convert to Islam or we'll kill you. But that's not a conversion. A forced conversion is no conversion at all. And that's always been the problem with Islam. The, the guys who did mimic the Persians though were the Mongols. <laughs> and the Mongols had their own religion, Tengrism, which is basically a copy of Zoroastrianism. It, it was an unitary power splitting, phallus worship religion, Tengrism in Mongolia. And then they conquered the rest of the world, bloodily so, yes. But once they've conquered the world in the 13th century, the, Mon the Mongols said that you can have any religion alike just as long as you pay tax to the emperor which was exact exact copy of the Persian Empire. So they, they are dealing with the scapegoat mechanism on a different level. To them, it is, how do you civilize war? War is gonna be around, violence will be there, the urge to conquer territory will always be there. And so war will always exist, but how do you make war as civilized as you possibly could be? That was the Zoroastrian question that they tried to solve. Whereas Christianity then in a complementary way, moved down to the sort of street level where you got the slave mentality and then realized that the slave mentality is what causes these mobs and you must not kill the scapegoat. That I think is the difference. Yeah. Are you there, Andrew? Yeah, I'm so there. The, there, there yeah. are other um, 
So the Romans also did that, right? So they, they allowed people to keep their religion. And also in Islam, you, you actually have periods like El Andalus in, in, in Spain. So there, uh, so you could, you could be a Jew and a Christian. You just have to pay more taxes. So, so these but that's, di that's different, though. That's different, though. That's because Islam instated, probably Zoroastrian idea in Islam, they instated that all the religions of the book, so all the religions that prior to Islam, which includes Judaism, Zoroastrianism, mm -hmm. and Christianity are also holy religions. That's why you have Zoroastrian representatives, Jewish representatives, Christian representatives in the Miles, in, in the parliament in Iran today. It's impossible in Islam to kill those who belong to it, but they must not proselytize in Islam. So you're not allowed to convert as a Muslim to the older religions, but you can keep the older religions to keep them within the realm and therefore they must be protected, which is why Muslims have been much nicer to Jews historically than the Christians were. Ironically, of course, today they've shifted that. But, you know, historically, the Muslims treated the Jews way better than the Christians did. But, but that, the there's an explanation for that. This is the it's called the religions of the book in Islam, the religions of the book. So we have we have a religion that is built upon the exposure and the rejection of the scapegoat mechanism, and even that religion cannot escape scapegoating on a massive scale. You know, Christians have been burning Jews, they've been burning women, they've been burning heretics for two thousand years. So this is kind of a bit ominous, right? So even a religion that actually really, in some sense, gets it or gets at least an important part of human anthropology. So even that religion completely fucks up in many cases. So, so it seems to be that we are, we are facing a pretty daunting task. Yeah, but I think statistically, I would defend both Christianity and Zoroastrianism here. I think statistically speaking, if you look at the data, the much larger populations and the more territories that were covered, I think actually you did, you did minimize the lynch mobbing. I think Christianity successfully did that, even if it did the pogroms and everything. But and I think exactly if you look at what happened in the 20th century, when we got rid of Christianity in the West, we got Hitler and Stalin. And I am furious right. with people who don't want to realize that Hitler and Stalin are atheists and pagans. You know, yeah. if, if, you don't, if you don't accept that they're completely post-Christian. There's nothing yeah, crazy yeah. about Hitler and Stalin at all. They're and that's exactly why I'm terrified of the woke lynch mobs today. I don't think yeah. at all they realize that they're a ba basically a terrible Western mimicry of the Chinese Cultural Revolution. And that was devastating. Well, I don't want all cults Cambodia again, you know? It's a Christian sect. It's a, the, 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 these people, so these, these, the, the woke masses, right? This is a Christian Puritan sect. Very simple. They don't even know. It's Christian. not even Christian. It's post oh, well, no, it's kind of like a parody of Christianity, right? I yeah. mean, Girard is it's a parody of Christianity. It's not Christ, but it, yeah. they they kind of they kind of take the ideas of Christianity, namely protect the scapegoat, protect the scapegoat, which is a Christian obsession and rightfully so, and then they use that obsession to make scapegoats and to go completely pagan. Well, we, we discussed this many times, right? But I, I find it so amusing to kind of to kind of see that. I mean, Girard Girard has has uh, described this brilliantly in his books. Uh, yeah. Guys, I'm like through a third of my notes I had for this conversation, but I have to finish off. <laughs> so right. I'd love to continue the conversations. I'd love these conversations with you guys.